Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, welcome. Today, we're talking about green crabs. This is New England's invasive critters, and could they be a culinary delight? Uh, And my guest today is Mary Park from uh, greencrab.org. Hello, Mary. Hello. Great to be speaking with you. And um, you've come down from Maine, and you're living here in... uh, in Cambridge. Yes, so our organization is based in Cambridge, and we work with fishermen across New England and chefs. Yeah, let me say a bit about who you are. You, Mary Park is executive director of greencrab.org, and Mary is a co-author of the Green Crab Cookbook. From the coast of Maine, Rockland, with a background in fishery science at the Bigelow Marine Lab, uh, Mary's roles include bringing Green Crab, a nonprofit, to commercial fisheries, organizing outreach and culinary events, and managing web design and social media platforms. Now, you know, we had a chance to talk, you know, before airtime and stuff, and, you know, these, these crabs are just, I've just pushed out the rock crabs, and they seem to be ubiquitous and everywhere, and I was really surprised that uh, what is just a big nuisance here in New England are something very special over in Venice, Italy. So tell us about uh, the green crab and what you're learning about green crabs from Venice. Absolutely. Um, So our organization works to develop different markets for green crabs. And so even though they're an invasive species here in the United States on both coasts, you hop across the pond to Venice, Italy. They are a highly regarded artisanal species that people travel from all over the world to eat soft shell or for their caviar um, and also in other ways. And so our organization is trying to learn how we can bring the Venetian soft shell and caviar industry over to the United States as a means of controlling these invasive populations. Um, So to to talk a little bit more about how the Venetian molt soft shells Um, As I mentioned, it's an artisanal industry, and so it very much has remained unchanged for the past 200 years or so. And so these Venetian fishermen are going out into the Venetian lagoon, they're harvesting crabs, and under the hot Venetian sun, they're manually sorting them by holding the crabs up under the hot sun to see this tiny little difference in coloration between the two layers of shell. And so that's what they consider a good crab, is what they call it. Um, and they being the moecante, so green crabs are known as moleque in Venice or moleque in Italy. Um, and then they sort these crabs out once they see that they're about to molt. So they can then take the soft shells to market once they molt. Um, and these crabs, they retail from anywhere from 30 to 90 euros a kilo, which is up to about $45 a pound here, which is a lot. Um, and again, people travel from... Yeah, people travel from all over the world just for Maleki season, um, and it's a huge event in Venice. So we're trying to learn from that industry. So a lot of a, a one-pound lobster is a pretty small lobster. How many green crabs in a pound? So it does vary depending on the size of the yeah. crab. You can get anywhere from 
20 to 8 crabs a pound, um, maybe yeah. even 5 crabs a pound if they were really, really big. Yeah, but still, 8 bucks a crab, that's amazing. Um, if they're yeah, big. it is. Um, yeah. Uh, and um, so this is quite a process. The, the Venetian fishermen are putting out what baskets or kind of like crab pots, and then you were saying that they haul them in and, and hold each one up to the light to see the way the sun penetrates through these. I guess the shells aren't, aren't as tough as ours. I mean, our crabs are pretty green, you know. They're kind of dark, but they're able to see through the crab or the light? Yeah, so there's a color change that happens when the outer shell starts peeling away. So the old shell that they're going to lose starts separating from the new shell underneath, which is the soft shell. Um, and so they're able, holding it up to the light, and that's one of the things that these Venetian fishermen are working with us um, and Manamet New Hampshire Sea Grant on, our partners for uh, molting soft shells, is understanding um, what that pre-molt sign looks like um, and training fishermen so that they can identify that tiny little difference in coloration so that they know this crab is about to molt in X days. And the good ones, they toss into a bucket of water that, that where they can molt or something, and the bad ones, I don't know, do they throw the bad ones back, or what do they do? So they would have this big well of crabs that they would sort through, bent over, um, and the crabs that were about to molt, they would put into a separate container to allow them to molt. And so that would be actually within the Venetian Lagoon in a little wicker basket-like thing, and so... If you look up photos of Venetian moeke, you'll see that it's essentially just all these floats made out of wood um, and wicker that the fishermen will keep the crabs in. And the really important thing is sorting out crabs that are about to molt and crabs that have molted so that the other crabs don't damage or attack them. Right. So it's a I mean, very, very corralling crabs into, Yeah, and you've got to keep them from attacking yeah. each other because they go soft. Do they get private exactly. housing or something? Yeah. <laughs> in a way, yeah. <laughs> um, oh, so my gosh. Here in, yeah, here in, the, in, in what Manamet New Hampshire Sea Grant has been doing a lot of is looking at how we could use lobster cars. Um, and so they've been actually engineering individual little cells so that once the crab is about to molt, they would go into a little individual holding cell, um, and that would essentially prevent them from getting any in any tussles. Yeah, because they're famously vicious with those big claws waving around and they could really pull the other guy apart real quick. So you have to exactly. separate them. Exactly. And mm-hmm. you can't like put um, bits of wood into the claws the way they do with lobsters to keep them from clipping each other. No, that probably be a lot more work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of making matchsticks, you can make a little crab claw sticks or something. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's a little bit of work there. But, um, so, so then they would just watch them to see when they've molted, right? And they scoop them up quick, I guess, after that. Exactly. So they would routinely check in on the crabs to see if they're done half molted. Um, and as soon as they molt, they're taken off to market that same day. Yeah. Well, that's easy. You don't have to clean the crab. You can just eat the crab from left to right or Exactly. So that's, that's a great thing about soft shell crab is since it is this fresh crab right out of the ocean is usually they just t- 
take it right out of the Venetian Lagoon. You'll drop in a little bit more lagoon water, toss it in some flour, um, and then right into the fryer. That's super, because I once did a a solo where they had me sit out on an island, you know, on the coast of Maine for three days with a frying pan and not much else. And I, I, I managed to corner a crab, and I was so thrilled. And I looked at the size of him and how much fun I was talking to another critter on the shore that I didn't think it was worth killing him just to pull out the bits for meat and stuff because you know, it's difficult to be cleaning a crab compared to a lobster. So it's great that you can eat you know, the, entire, the entire beast. And, um, yeah, so yeah, I think tell me a bit looking about... At- oh, go ahead. I was, yeah, I was just going to say that looking at, you know, if a chef is going to be working with this new crab species, it's exactly what you're talking about. And that if they don't have to do sucking or cleaning or extra preparation, it's just so much easier to work with the whole crab. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, it's like really intimidating to have to poke out the little bits of meat from the claws and stuff. Yeah. It can be a little extra work, definitely. <laughs> um, and, and what are the average size crabs you're harvesting? Um, so, I mean, like, we'll see crabs anywhere from um, that you're pulling up in the typical trap. Could be anywhere from um, an inch across the carapace to three or four inches if they're larger. Yeah. Um, but I would say most of them tend to be about an inch and a half to two and a half inches. Yeah. That's On average. the average size. It, you've yeah. got a wonderful film on your website, um, greencrab.org, um, but it, it's up close and you're inside the cage, so these, these crabs look like monsters because they're right up against the camera and stuff. It's really hard to tell the size. Um, so yeah, tell so, me more um, about... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say the, the, that film by Nubar Alexanian of Walker Creek Media, was, it was really cool because it was one of our first chances to actually look inside the crab trap to see how fast these crabs are coming in. And I think it just, it, it exemplifies just how abundant they are and how easy they are to catch um, and how voraciously they'll go after anything from lobster bait to native species. Right. I mean, they're just cascading into the trap. They're just like tripping over each other to get in there. Absolutely. Yeah. It is. And, it and does you- not take a long time to haul up a full trap of green crab. No, surprised. And they just put a piece of fish in there or something for bait? Mm-hmm. So you can put anything from a hake rack or any, and when I say rack, I mean essentially the leftover um, bones from filleting a fish. And mm, so like you can put anything yeah. from, yeah, exactly, from those leftovers in there to um, other small bait fish. And they tend to attract pretty quickly to that. I hear that the lobstermen like to use crab for their bait, which we've had a problem with the herring fishery with too much herring going to, to lobster bait when we're worried about how many herring are being caught. Uh, Is this an alternative? Uh, Are are crabs that bait that could be used uh, green crabs by uh, say lobstermen? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so they, they're definitely useful as lobster bait, and they're also really popular bait for tatog and striped bass. Um, so there's a hmm. ton of different bait applications that they could have. Yeah. So tatog and striped um, bass, they're hook and line, so you're putting them on a hook? or 
How do you bait with crab yeah. for those fish? Yeah. So most what, what most people do, and it, it's great because it, it prevents the crab from being able to re-enter the ocean environment, but um, most people will cut the crab in half and then just hook the hook right through the center of the crab um, yeah. if they're going hook and line fishing. And it's a really popular choice, especially with recreational fishers. Well, that's great. You don't have to buy big fish and chop them up or something. Um, you exactly, can eat yeah. them or something. But that's, that's really cool. Um, tell us a bit yeah. about the uh, natural history of the green crab. Yeah, so green crabs arrived on the East Coast of the United States in the 1800s. And so their populations are pretty dense around Massachusetts and Maine. Um, but it really wasn't until a couple years ago, about a decade ago, that populations really started to explode. Um, and the reason being is that... Um, our oceans have been getting warmer, and so these, these mm. cold winters are typically what kills off a lot of the green crab stock. Um, and also, they risk, they reached a critical point in their population. And so, it was around a couple years ago that we really, really started seeing them start to take over the softshell clam industry. Um, and now, researchers such as Brian Beale in Maine have found that green crabs and the invasion of green crabs are likely responsible for the main softshell clam population declines. Um, and so oh not gosh. only do they, yeah, so not only are they a huge, huge problem for softshell clams and softshell clamors, but they also compete local crab species, and they also will destroy eelgrass territory when they're foraging for food. And so if you think about a green crab as being kind of like a lawnmower, while they're foraging for food, whether that be a small mollusk yeah. or any sort of shellfish or a baby lobster, they're often actually digging up the eelgrass and slicing it. And so a lot of people are under the impression that this is a huge driver behind declining eelgrass populations, which is really important nursery habitat for a lot of the finfish species and shellfish species that we love to eat. Yes, yeah. there's a whole lot in there that we're going to unpack. Um, because yeah, I mean, wow. Um, so for starters, you know, like 20, 30 years ago, I was a science teacher taking uh, my students into tide pools and there we could tell uh -huh. the green crabs cause they have like five points to, on either side of the face and they weren't as boxy as the, they were more kind of arced than the, mm -hmm. the rock crabs were more boxy. And I think we're finding about 60, maybe 70%. I mean, there were more green crabs, but not a whole lot more green crabs. There were always rock crabs as well. And mm -hmm. so apparently mm -hmm. that's gotten worse and worse. Uh, no surprise there. And then um, they, they've gone out of the tide pools and into the clam beds, right? So they're, they're now just Indeed. chomping away at little clams. Because those are different habitats. They are, don't think of, Yeah. Yeah, and in fact, one adult um, green crab can eat up to 40 half-inch clams in a day, um, which is absolutely insane. So if you think about even what the implications yeah. of a few crabs moving in one year to a new habitat, I mean, they can do a lot of damage very, very quickly. So it's a big concern to the industry. And each crab has a lot of eggs. So there's a huge they, you know, reproduction Right? 
Yeah, so um, a female green crab can produce 185,000 eggs in a year, which is a whole lot of eggs. And so if you think about over time and how it doesn't take a long time for their populations to really grow once they're in new areas, it can be really, really scary, um, which is well, one of the reasons why monitoring and... Yeah. yeah, Yeah, it's very scary. And monitoring is really important. Um, but, mm-hmm. you know, they do spend time floating in the plankton where they're a main food source for all, you know, the, the plankton in general is zooplankton is mm-hmm. chomped on by all kinds of stuff. So there's been this mm-hmm. ratio of lots of plankton in order to have some surviving, but that's a lot of some, some crabs coming through there, uh, settling mm-hmm. down and, and scrabbling about. Um, and then that they have the strength to just crush, um, you know, 40, you know, lots of, what do you say, inch long clams? Um, and of course the clam starts to half inch clam. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. yikes. Has that had, do you think that's had an effect on the clam industry? Yeah. Yeah. So a a few researchers at the university of Maine, I mean, including Brian Beal, who's been studying clams for years. Um, they pretty firmly believe that Maine declining Maine clam populations are attributed to predation by green crabs. Um, and there's actually wow. a few, uh, Brian, along with some other people are looking into, is the future of clamming dependent on utilizing technologies like clam boxes that actually prevent green crabs from harvesting these small clams. Um, and yeah, that would be a huge, huge shift to the industry, but it might be necessary in the future. Yeah, it would be a huge expense for the industry, but it would... Mm-hmm. However, you've got, a, what's the alternative to that? You've got the alternative, right, is, which is harvest the heck out of the green crabs. Yeah, so, so what our organization is all about is creating markets for green crabs. And so we particularly focus on the culinary connection and how developing caviar or broth or soft-shell markets could motivate people to remove um, green crabs consistently from local environments. And so we partner with chefs and fishermen to, fishermen to promote local supply networks, um, as well as wholesalers and processors. Um, we also host outreach events, and we also just came out with a cookbook that is all about eating green crabs. Um, everything from Moeke recipes from Venice to um, broth and stock and other recipes, too, and caviar recipes. So there are Mary, plenty that's of really great. ways to eat green crabs. Yeah. We're going to... We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to come back and learn more about the culinary side, uh, the eating, cooking side of the green crab invasion, and how we can uh, divert that uh, flow of uh, protein and food and stuff onto our plates and beautiful arrangements and stuff, tasty arrangements, uh, to uh, combat this uh, scourge of uh, crustaceans that are threatening our my clam chowder and my fried clams and everything else. So uh, we'll be right back after this break. On a 
Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.oceanriver.org. That's oceanriver.org. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI Actions and Events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. are listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking about the green crab invasion of New England and how we've been, uh, our intertidal areas and our offshore coastal waters have just been smothered in crab, where it used to be in green crab, which have the five points, and that's the same number as the letters in green. Um, and whereas rock crabs have four, and it's only R-O-C-K, uh, and they're more boxy, but it used to be you'd see a couple of rock crabs and lots of green crabs, and now it's primarily green crabs. And they're just they, – they, their native home is on the other side of the Atlantic and uh, they, because they came over and shipped ballast or something, and they're just wrecking havoc with their ecology. And so to the rescue is this little nonprofit uh, called greencrab.org. And with me is Mary Park, the executive director. Uh, Mary, how can people um, – find out more about your work online and, and contact you. Yeah, so if you go to Green Crab R&D's website, which is just greencrab.org, 
You can learn about local suppliers. You can find species ID guides um, and also our contact information and a bunch of free recipes. Um, and you can also check out Manamit, which is one of our partner organizations. They've been doing a lot of work with green crabs as well as the New Hampshire Sea Grant Green Crab Project. Um, and so that's kind of our local little hub of organizations that are working to create markets for green crabs and especially looking into soft shell development and monitoring. And you have a nice little blog, so you have postings on that. And um, there's a video that's got live action, crab action. Um, yeah, it's a great resource. I highly recommend it. And if you want to reach out to, to Mary, um, you can uh, contact her through the website. Uh, we're going to be talking about events coming up. We're going to be talking about recipes. Um, if you, you're welcome to follow along just by going to uh, greencrab.org. Uh, we were talking about, you know, all the, you know, the whole web of life that you have of marine life under the waters, under the waves. And those green crabs aren't just marauding around tide pools where I used to see them, but they, uh, as you were saying, they're heading out into uh, clam flats and having a real impact on half-inch clams, uh, a devis- uh a bad impact. I don't know if it's devastating, but it's certainly um, got the uh, clamors concerned and it's got me concerned because I like to eat clam, clams. Uh, but one of the most precious habitats we have here in the Gulf of Maine are the eelgrass beds. They're just so few. It's so easy for anchoring boats to tear them up and it's so easy for things scratching the bottom to disturb them. And, and then they are sensitive to water quality. So now that we've come so far and so much work has been done in cleaning up our harbors and uh, cleaning up what our rivers are putting out, that there's hope for, green, for eelgrass coming out. But then along come the crabs. So tell us more about green crabs and eelgrass. Yeah, so when, when green crabs are feeding, they are often digging through the mud, trying to get shellfish or small fish to eat. And when they're doing that, they're functioning essentially as a lawnmower, slicing the eelgrass. Um, and so uh, a lot of researchers have, let, have now believed that declining eelgrass populations are partially attributed to green crabs' predation and foraging activity. Um, and so when we think about all the species that are affected by green crabs in turn, from baby lobsters and shellfish in general to bird species that are feeding on the eelgrass um, to finfish species that are using eelgrass as nursery habitat, um, there can be a really, really big impact. And so um, some researchers that we've been working with in green crab monitoring, including Alyssa Novak at Boston University, um, have actually gone in and are working with reseeding efforts along with their monitoring programs for green crabs. Um, and so it is also really scary to think about if populations of green crabs are to increase, which they likely will in the future, what that means for these already vulnerable populations of eelgrass. Yeah, it's not looking good, but it was really cool the way the, the scientist was able to, you know, have, because uh, it's a plant. It's not like uh, algae. It doesn't have holdfast. It has real roots. And, and the scientist mm-hmm. was able to have little rooted plants that we could see her planting them, you know, like planting, um, you know, plants in the ground, you know. It's just really exciting that uh, she could be literally just being like Johnny Appleseed. 
exactly. Exactly. And, and you know, th- this is a great thing about Sea Grant is that they're so tied into communities. So is there an opportunity for citizens to help uh, marine life restoration along these different areas? Absolutely. So if you go to the New Hampshire Green Crab Project page, one awesome thing that they do that is led by um, Gabby Bratt, who runs the program, is they have these green crab hunts. And so people can actually, they, they usually gather at the Seacoast Science Center, um, and people from Massachusetts to Maine can gather in New, coastal New Hampshire to go on a collective citizen science adventure. So you can learn how to identify green crabs, how to find them, and then help log data. Yeah, I highly recommend it. When I was a science teacher in seventh grade in New Hampshire, um, the the Seacoast the Seaco Science Center, the Odeon Point, was the best place to take my classes because they had not only they have fantastic tide pools, but they had public bathrooms. You know, <laughs> so it's really important to have the combination of the two. Uh, but uh, they have such wonderful programs, and it's a great family activity to get together and, and go hunting green crabs. And, and Absolutely. I, and, and then the UNH Sea Grant page, which is you can get to from uh, uh, greencrab.org, uh, has opportunities to help with uh, eelgrass restoration and surveying and stuff. So there's just there's so many wonderful opportunities to get families engaged. I mean, dads like to look good with their kids doing stuff, and, and this is a great way to get into the outdoors. Um, so yeah, so these terrible crabs—they're taking on the eelgrass, they're taking on the um, clams, and then um, is there much interaction between crabs and lobster? Yeah, so a big issue with crabs and lobsters is that they go for the, that green crabs go for the same food sources. Um, and so lobsters are going to eat a lot of the detrital matter that's on the bottom of the ocean along with a lot of these same shellfish species that green crabs are going to eat. Um, but another issue is that hybrid populations in Canada um, that have, are, have now been shown to be more ferocious, uh, more aggressive, and larger um, have actually been seen to eat lobster spawn. And so this is of a really big concern that these hybrid species in Canada and the Gulf of, like the upper Gulf of Maine come down and start eating more and more lobster spawn in the Gulf of Maine. That could be a huge problem. Yes. And what are they hybridizing with? So they're hybridized of some of the northern and southern populations of green crab, two subspecies. Um, and oh, so there's two species. There's two subspecies, yes. Um, yeah, subspecies. And so these, these northern and southern species essentially um, were able to hybridize in Canada, and they've been shown to be so much more ferocious than the non-hybridized species that we have down here in Massachusetts um, and more south. And I think Whoa, a really weird. important... yeah. So a, a scary thing to think about and why, it's, why it is really important to, I mean, it's, it's also illegal to transfer crabs in between states, but one of the reasons it's important is when we're setting up an industry and we're thinking about what could happen if Canadian green crabs were introduced to Massachusetts waters, it could be devastating. And so that's why it's so important to know where the crabs are coming from and also to promote local markets 
um, and really educate people on the dangers of reintroducing crabs and also the legalities. Well, it's really hard because the crabs, as we were saying earlier, spend an early stage in their life floating around as zooplankton, and they just get sucked Mm -hmm. into ship ballast, you know, and we've got so much good traffic, you know, between Canada, between the Maritimes and New England that um, it's just a matter of time. So bravo for crab.org for just harvesting more and more crabs because you don't care whether it's a northern subspecies or a southern subspecies of green crab or the hybridized. They all cook up about the same, I would think. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Wow. So they're wrecking havoc with lobsters, and and, uh, hopefully, you know, the lobsters are chowing down some green crabs when they're small. But um, something's happening. At least the the lobsters are doing okay in in the Gulf of Maine. Uh, At least that's what we're hearing from the, the lobstermen. I guess they're, they're, they're ten, the, the center of the population is moving north with uh, warming waters, though, so that the, the good trapping of yesterday isn't necessarily the same in the southern portions. Um, yeah. Uh, do you see uh, warming waters affecting uh, the uh, green crab? Yes. So, um, and this is something that Manomet scientist Marissa McMahon's talked about a lot about, but populations of green crabs are expected to do very, very well in warming waters. And the reason that is, is, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, cold winters are really important for controlling their populations. And so as we start to see warmer and warmer winters, um, we will expect less and less crabs to be killed off by those cold winters. And also, these, these hybridized green crabs will also likely do very, very well um, in both colder and warmer waters. It's pretty scary. Uh, well, that's not good. Um, yeah, that's surprising. They're doing better in cold water, yet we want cold water for them to, uh, to, to die back. Or, Like I said earlier, maybe they just go offshore, and so they're, they don't really disappear. They just hunker down or um, avoid the cold, and then their back is more voracious than ever. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think we've covered the ecology of the green crab. And, um, oh, um, what, what, let's tell people how to tell the, the sexes apart. Yeah. Um, so kind of, and this is something that somebody told me at a festival sometime um, that they found useful for the blue crab industry, but... When you're looking at the underside of the crab um, and you look at the shape of the apron on the female, it's going to be kind of shaped like the Capitol building. And so it has kind of a rounded dome-like shape with a little point on the top. And then if you look at the mm. male crab, um, they have it's, it's a much more narrow piece. And so it kind of looks like the Washington Monument. So if you think Capitol <laughs> Building and Washington Monument, that's an easy way to tell them apart. Um, and we also have a guide online for differentiating males and females if anybody wants to look at pictures. This time of year, too, you'll also start to see some of the females um, are grabbed with eggs. And so um, if they had been harvested maybe a couple weeks before, they would have delicious caviar inside. But if you see a female that has this big orange ball that's starting to come out of the apron, that means it's about to release a lot of eggs. So 
feel free if you see one of those on the beach or anywhere in the intertidal to remove and smash <laughs> to help control populations. Yeah, just get it out of the sea and, and toss it way inland and, uh, exactly. or smash or whatever. Yeah. Um, right. So, you know, the lobsters, we know how the meat's in the tail, but in crabs, that tail is wrapped around, so that's why they're not shaped like a lobster. And the, the wraparound is what you're calling the apron, and it's between mm-hmm. that, that tail and, and the body that the females hold the eggs. And so you were saying that it's not, once the eggs are bulging out, it's no longer caviar, it's just plain eggs, or is there a different yeah, stages so or something? Once, once yeah. they extrude the eggs in that part of the tail, it's, it's really not good to eat as caviar anymore, but before they extrude their eggs, um, and in Venice it's very popular, it's known as masanete, and it's essentially this delicious, fragrant caviar um, that you can find both in the fall and this time of year in kind of the second caviar season that's a little bit smaller. Wow, who can imagine? I mean, sturgeon have caviar, but who thought that those stupid green, green crabs would have such an important uh, ingredient as that? Um, yeah. And- right, so that, that's a reason to harvest uh, females um, is to go for the caviar. Absolutely, and why not remove a bunch of pre-reproductive females from the environment that are about to release tons and tons of eggs? So it goes hand-in-hand with our mission. This is really interesting. Um, It's time for another break, and when we come back, we're going to dive into the culinary aspects of how to uh, benefit and enjoy green crabs out of their natural habitat. Local stewardship with global support. The Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco stewards and ORI partners connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI Actions and Events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, 
Fertilizer. Please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.oceanriver.org. That's oceanriver.org. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. are listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with Mary Park executive director of greencrab.org. And we're, you know, we've got these green crabs that are just marauding around our shores. And um, during the break, uh, Mary mentioned that um, you can just go out to the intertidal zone with a bucket and, and there are better times. So what were the better times to collect crabs? Um, so it's not so much about timing as much as it is knowing where to look for them. And so we're actually going to be releasing a guide at greencrab.org that's going to talk about how you can go out and forage for soft shells if you're interested. Um, And a lot of it is just knowing how to look under certain patches of seaweed and in certain environments and what that looks like. Great. Yeah, the only timing would be if you wanted them soft instead of regular. But um, the important thing is to get out there and find them. And you have recipes for both kinds of crabs, right? Exactly. So we have recipes for soft-shell crabs. We have recipes for hard-shell crabs. We have recipes for larger crabs and even smaller green crabs. So we have we, we kind of start off at least, um, and we have recipes both online at greencrab.org and in our new cookbook. Um, so we start mm. off the cookbook and also provide online kind of the basic ways in which you can cook with green crabs. So starting off with what we talked about before, which is the moeke or soft-shell crab, um, there is kind of two main ways in which you can prepare them. And so the first is the Venetian way, where you literally just take the crab from lagoon water and put it in some flour and put it in the fryer. Um, But you can also prepare it kind of more like a blue crab, where you would trim the sides and take off a couple of the leg pieces to really just focus on that meaty morsel. Um, but a great part about soft-shell green crabs, unlike soft-shell blue crabs, is that they are, they're smaller, they're just a little bit more intense in flavor, they're a little bit sweeter. Um, mm. And this overall, they do have less soft shell and less shell. So they are very much a, more, a meaty morsel that you can just pop in your mouth. Yum. And what about the hard ones? Yeah. Yeah, so you can use hard shells in a wide variety of ways, too. And so the first way in which you can cook with hard shell crabs, which is probably my favorite way to eat green crabs, is to shuck them for their caviar. And so caviar, as I mentioned before, is available in the fall as well as around this time of year. You'll start to see a smaller caviar season um, where less frequently females have caviar, but you can still find quite a few with them. 
And so this caviar, which is known as massanete, it's served in a couple ways traditionally in Venice. So either you can have it right out of the shell with a little bit of salt, maybe a little bit of fresh lemon, kind of like eating an oyster on the half shell. Or you can also saute the massanete with a little bit of white wine or vinegar um, in a saucepan. And then we also even have some recipes in our cookbooks, like the like Heather Atwood's Teramosolata, which is blended caviar with also some soaked bread and lemon, and that's a beautiful Greek meze dish. Um, and we also have some other recipes, such as our massanete crab cakes that have sweet potato and caraway seeds and this caviar, and it's an absolutely delicious fried little morsel. Mm. Um, and you can have it on yep. pastas and potatoes. and um, Exactly. You can have it on pastas. So we have a few pasta dishes in there. You could have it on even a lobster roll. We've heard of people putting the caviar on top of lobster rolls. Um, it's caviar. I mean, you can put it on pretty much anything, and it is delicious. Um, and it also, it does have this umami quality. So like the caviar as well as the stalks and broths and really any green crab that you're going to eat, it's this softer, less seafoody flavor um, that is just absolutely delicious in a wide variety of dishes. Um, but you can also use green crabs to make a stock, and it's one of the easiest ways that you can cook with them. And so if you have anywhere from... 12 green crabs to 150 green crabs, depending on your stock or your stock pot size, obviously. You can crush them up and have a delicious stock in less than a half an hour. Um, and it's an, also a really, really easy way of serving a lot of people green crab and doing a little bit less prep work. Um, and you can use that with caviar crabs. You can use that with small crabs, with larger crabs. Um, and yeah. We have also two recipes in our cookbook, and the second is a, a ginger and kelp stock, and that's kind of with a bit of more preparation involved. And so that would involve taking off some of the carapace as well as the gills and the eye stalks, and that's a slightly more refined um, stock that's a little bit lighter. But you can, hmm. you can do a whole bunch of things with them, and you can even make a New England-style sheet crab soup. So traditionally, she crab soup is made with the roe um, and stock of blue crabs, but you can also make it with the roe and stock of green crabs. Um, and other people have even reduced the stock for risottos and pasta dishes, and we actually have a Campari tomato um, and tarragon pasta dish that has a green crab broth that is less than 20 minutes to whip up. Um, I guess, oh, yeah, and, and for small crabs, I mean, a great part about the small crab is that they have a little bit less, um, they have, their shell is a little bit less thick. And so people like Ali Walk Adams of the Brunswick Inn have fried this little crab whole um, and called it a popcorn crab where you can literally just pop the crab in your mouth. And it's like a little crisp. Um, and then you can also kind of treated a little bit more like a soft shell. And so we also have a pizza recipe in our book that is a grilled small crab pizza recipe. And so if they are about, you know, a centimeter to an inch and a half in size, they're a bit smaller, um, you can definitely fry them whole. Um, and they're delicious that way too. Who would have thought it? And then uh, <laughs> you have fermented crab? 
Yeah, so um, we don't have any recipes in our book, but my co-author, Tan Tai, is the, she runs Green Crab Cafe, which is an incredible blog that is fully dedicated to cooking with green crabs. And so she's recently been experimenting with some fermented green crab recipes um, along with Tanam and Somerville. They've been creating some fermented green crab recipes too, working R&D. And so how do we learn more about this? Now that we're so all um, you can, yeah. So if you want, it, greencrab.org is where Green Crab R&D has all of our information. If you want to order a copy of the cookbook, if you need to find a local fisherman or a supplier, um, we're also Green Crab Project on Instagram and Facebook. Um, and we're also going to be having tasting events all throughout the summer in the Boston and New York and other areas too. Right, um, so I see so you have one coming up on the 13th of June. We do, so the, uh, we are honored to yeah. be, yeah, we were selected for this year's Readable Feast cookbook competition that we're really excited for, and so we're going to be signing books at the Innovation and Design Building, um, and that is June 13th, and then on July 8th, we're going to be hosting a book signing and tasting event at Trident Booksellers which is right on Newberry Street in Boston. And Trident is going to be, we're either going to be serving the sheet crab soup or the ginger and kelp stock, and we'll be signing cookbooks, and we're also going to do an interactive shucking and sorting demo. And so that will be free and open to the public and a great chance for people in the Boston area to try green crabs. Um, we're it. also yes, going to be, yeah, yeah. And we also, we don't have dates set right now, but we're also going to be doing some restaurant pop-ups this summer at places like The Little Donkey and Benedetto and Cambridge. Um, so stay tuned to greencrab.org, and we will be soon sharing date information for those events. And you're going to New York? Yeah. So if you're in the New York area, um, on August 8th, we're going to be hosting an event with Bill Telepan at the Institute of Culinary Education. And so that's going to be an, another interactive event that is focused on cooking multiple green crab dishes, um, exploring the green crab cookbook, um, and also working with some researchers or hearing from some researchers who are working in monitoring and remediation efforts. Um, we'll also be at the Boston Local Food Fest hosting our touch tank and signing cookbooks. Um, but, oh, and I forgot, we're also going to probably be having two other tastings in New York, too, if not three. Um, so stay tuned for additional tastings with some New York restaurants. So that will be in August, or you don't know? That will be July through August. Yeah. Well, that's great. So you got events in Boston and events uh, in New York, and um, and... Probably you'll have events in New Hampshire and Maine, but that's, yeah, you've got so to follow your calendar. Yeah, so Manum at New Hampshire yeah. Sea Grant, I've, I've already started working with some local restaurants. So Moxie and Portsmouth recently served a green crab dish, um, working with New Hampshire Sea Grant, um, and we'll, we'll definitely be sharing those events and more information on our website, too. So bring your buckets to um, greencrab.org and um, prepare to be fed well and help save the ocean by removing these um, noxious critters that have been uh, 
destroying uh, clams and seagrass and, and uh, not making things easy for lobsters either. Um, bravo. And this sounds really delicious. They are. They are. They're honestly an incredibly tasty species. And even though they might not be the most popular thing to eat right now, who knows in 10 years, it could be the next lobster. Well, yeah, and lobster popcorn. I mean, you know, I mean, not lobster, but, you know, crab, green crab, you know, the small ones, um, they're, they're small enough that the hard shell is not so much an issue if you make a, you know, if you toast them and stuff, I guess. Exactly. Or deep fry them. <laughs> If you what? Or if you deep fry them. Oh, deep fry them, right. That tends to crisp up the shell very nicely. Yeah. Yeah, who needs French yeah. fries? You can have French fried uh, green crabs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, well, thank you, um, Mary uh, Parks. This is fabulous. Um, thank you for taking the time to uh, tell us about the uh, the work you're doing at Green Crab, and for more information, be sure to visit Mary at greencrab.org. Um, got a few minutes here. Um, how would you like to summarize this uh, episode of uh, New England's invasive critters or culinary device divides the green crab? Yeah, I mean, I guess I think that we're in a time where people are very much aware of sustainable seafood and the issues associated with eating sustainably or what we should be eating and what we shouldn't be eating. Um, and I think that green crabs are really, really unique in that it's not only something that can help the environment, but they are delicious. And also a lot of fishermen who are involved in fishing green crabs um, were previously in other industries or people who are seeing their industries, such as lobstering or soft-shell clamming, um, start to decline because of climate change, overfishing, and the invasive green crab. And so I encourage anyone who can to try green crabs if you see them available. Um, and even if you don't, one thing that we really encourage people to do at Green Crab R&D is just walk up to your local fish counter and ask them if they are serving green crabs or if they've thought about it even if you know that they're not serving them. Because oftentimes those fish counters and fish markets, their wholesalers are already bringing in green crabs for the bait market. And so it's pretty easy for them to transition to provide a special order or even start carrying them in the store. Um, and again, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out on greencrab.org and we'd be happy to answer your question or connect you to someone in our network who can. Mary, thank you. Well said. Um, thank you so much for coming on to this radio show. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. And that's it for another episode of Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Until next time, please take care of yourself and then take a moment to take some care of this planet of ours. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. Yeah.